The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we have whole group tonight. If you have questions as I share a little bit about doubt and the hindrances generally, feel free just to bring it up in the middle. Don't be shy. And then I'll try to save some time for a large group discussion for the last 15 minutes or so tonight. And um, in some ways, as you might imagine, doubt is one of the most seductive of the hindrances because when our mind is caught in doubt, right, then whatever the question, whatever it is that's unresolved, the mind feels quite justified in postponing practicing, which is that opening to things in and of themselves, that opening to the activity of the mind and body, not in terms of the concept or the idea of what's being known, but the immediacy of touch or the immediacy of hearing, seeing, thoughts is just thoughts, mental activity is mental activity. And so because the mind feels justified, well, I can't practice because I have to resolve this thought first, then the mind isn't practicing, and because the mind's not practicing, it's not getting any of the results that come with practice. More clarity, more understanding, more calm and tranquility. And then you see it just feeds back into itself. Because we're not practicing, the mind's more agitated, less clear. It feels right to conclude something's wrong, (laughs) right? What's wrong is the mind's caught in doubt. But the mistake we make is we think that the resolution will come from thinking about what's wrong, which, of course, it won't. And you know we're in good company here. I'm sure you remember both, like in the Christian tradition, the story is uh, from the Bible of Jesus on the cross. You know, why have you forsaken me? And the Buddha, too, some of you know the legend or the myth of the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. It's a beautiful story of uh, just having some ver- some deep clarity, intuition about I'm going to sit tonight and I'm not going to move until this mind, this heart wakes up to what there is to wake up to. Right? So we had this deep, powerful resolve until right, doubt arose in the, in the Buddhist tradition. You know, we talk about Mara, the personification of all of the forces of delusion, ignorance, reactivity in our minds. So Mara is sort of a mythical person. Actually, a very, like in terms of the realms of existence, Mara is not coming from a hell realm, as you might imagine. Sort of not like the devil is in Christian. He's in one of the very exalted realms. Mara is sort of a very powerful being, you know, with a lot of, right? Because our patterns of delusion, our patterns of reactivity, they're formidable. So Mara shows up and, you know, pulls out all the tricks, lust, fierce beasts, and, you know, the Buddha is just steadfast, sitting there, relaxed, not confused by what's arising, in his experience, until 
Mara pulls out, you know, the the weapon you wait, you know, when nothing else works, what do you pull out? We pull out doubt, right? So this is like, you know, as the story goes, the most seductive forces, the most fierce forces, nothing is destabilizing, interrupting, distracting the Buddha. So then Mara pulls out the final, you know, weapon. What right do you have to be sitting here not confused by, not attached to, not reacting to whatever's showing up in your experience. You know, being open, intimate, and non-reactive to knee pain. Being open and non-reactive to painful memories or this or that. What right do you have? Who do you think you are? Right? And uh, there's different ways this legend stories told in the tradition that one one of the more beautiful stories is uh, the divine mother you know the sort of spirit of Gaia the earth the feminine sort of wisdom force arose out of the oceans you know out of the water they are responding the Buddha you know we don't have it with ours but you see some of the statues have the Buddha touching the earth, right? So the Buddha calls on the Mother Earth as a witness that he's basically seen enough, he's paid attention enough to how attachment doesn't work, right? Struggling, grasping, reacting, how it's not the way. He's done his homework. He has a right to sit here letting everything come and go as it does. And so he calls on Mother Earth. Mother Earth arises out of the great oceans, all wet, and she wrings her hair and causes the flood that washes all the forces of Mara away. It's really a beautiful and sensual image, I think, which is really nice because, you know, know, these stories, if they're useful stories, they they have to include all the different aspects of being a human being, right? Not just the sort of uh, seemingly austere wisdom, well, Mara is just, just something being known, right? That's not what the Buddha did. He didn't pull out that sort of wisdom thing, you know, you're just Mara, that's, you're just a thought, you know. He, he, he really, it's like this relationship being an embodied creature, living this life as a human being. You know, the mother, the earth, it sort of represents this sort of conditioned realm. This is where the work was done. Really engaging the world and realizing through our own mistakes and our own successes that attachment does, it never helps. Getting tight, taking things personally, it doesn't help. It isn't, it doesn't, uh, but, but it's not a disengagement, right? He's still very much in the world, right? Calling on the world itself. So it's just interesting because one of the ways, one of the reasons we get caught in doubt is we think the resolution is in this abstracted realm of thinking. We're so convinced 
that the way that we resolve, like that whatever question our mind can ask, and I'm sure you've noticed, our minds, like a, those of you with kids know better, is it a three or four-year-old that asks all the questions somewhere in there, right? They could just ask a lot of questions. Why? <laughs> Why? And it's a little bit, in our minds, we think that we have to address the question, like the question, like, do I know what I'm doing in my meditation practice? Or is that person better than me? You know, or should I go to calm ground or should I go to this other center? Or should I pay attention to my breath at my nostrils? Or should I do a more open awareness practice? Or should I label my predominant experience? Or maybe I should be doing Sufi dancing. (laughs) Seems a lot more fun. And we just suppose we should have that before we go on, we should have a good answer to whatever question the mind asks. It's like a real turning point in our practice when we realize we don't have to answer the questions the mind has, the thinking mind has. Yeah, and this is what you're pointing out, you know, a practice that comes out of what you were just saying, Bob, that really ultimately gives us gives the mind a lot of resilience around the forces of doubt is to spend a lot of our time, both formally when we're sitting, but maybe even more importantly throughout the day when we're not sitting in meditation, is to notice the mind free of doubt, the moments, even if it's just like one moment out of a hundred moments or whatever it might be, but just notice moments you're washing the dishes, and in that moment, there's no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. But w- just because I said that what I said uh, you know, before you spoke, Bob, about we don't always have to answer the questions that arise in the mind, but we don't have to be afraid of addressing the questions, too, that arise in the mind. right? Because as we navigate the world of thought and concept and being in the moment and connecting. It's a matter of what appears to be skillful, what appears to be in the direction of release, in the direction of dana, sila, bhavana, right? These three Pali words, dana, sila, bhavana, you may recognize, but dana is the, is it, is like when we have these choices to think about something, to address something that arose in the thinking mind or whether to just do the next thing, show up to the next experience. The question is, is it a way of expressing the happiness of dana, of the circles of cycles of giving and receiving, the joy of that generosity? Or is it in the service of the happiness of non-harming, living in harmony, the bliss of blamelessness. This is what sila is. Like action that is beautiful and good and healing. Or is it in the service of uh, beautifying the mind? That's the bhavana. Cultivating a very stable, clear, present moment mind. And sometimes thinking is in the service of one of those three things. And sometimes it's the other direction. And sometimes just doing the next thing, showing up with awareness, 
is the way. So it's not that, I mean, obviously, like in this class, we're mostly in our heads thinking, hopefully, moments at a time. I mean, alternating moments, we're sort of grounding in the seeing, in the hearing, in the sensations, in the knowing that thoughts are just thoughts. But we're also in the thinking process and the comprehension on that level, right? So, but the question is, is the reflecting on the teachings, the Dhamma, clarifying the concepts in relationship to our actual experience? Does that support touching more and more the joy of giving, the joy of sila, of non-harming, the joy of stabilizing the mind and developing insight? Because if it does, it's great. Otherwise, our pursuit and study could just be part of the circles of, uh, of you know, skeptical doubt. I need to know how much karma I'm dragging behind me. You know, I want to know like how much karma I've burnt. I mean, all these sort of ideas around karma. You know, or another endless obsession for Buddhists is like. How much insight? Where am I on the path? The image that Joseph Goldstein uses for this is like a, he gives an example, his own example from his life as a first grader or second grader. And they were asked to plant carrot seeds, and uh, then he would always want to dig into a science project to see if the seed was beginning to sprout. Of course, you end up killing whatever sprout, whatever. It was going to start growing there. And so this is how we undermine our our practice. Uh, As you might remember from some of the texts that uh, were sent out earlier in the class, these um, ways the Buddha described the hindrances. So for doubt, the Buddha said, suppose there's a bowl of water that is turbid, unsettled, muddy, placed in the dark. If those with good sight were to were to each examine their own facial reflection in it, they would neither nor know nor see it as it really is, right, the muddy water. And another description of doubt, just as one laden with goods and wealth might go on a long journey through the desert where food was scarce and danger abounded, and after a time would get through the desert and arrive safe and sound at the edge of a village, might think, Before this, I was in danger. Now I am safe at the edge of a village. And they would rejoice and be glad about that. So check this out. Because when we're in our thoughts, that's being in the desert with a lot of danger, right? Because every new thought, every question, every sort of sense that I'm going to figure this out, we just, the mind gets more and more entangled more and more uncertain. And it's so interesting to check out, well, how about, it's, it's hard to do this because the thoughts become so compelling, it feels inappropriate to just leave them on the shelf and just notice the body sitting there. I mean, it's, I find this interesting having spent more time over the last several years reading about race and white privilege and just a lot of 
really good uh, books and articles around these days. And every day there seems to be something well-written and useful that's in the news sources I go to around the subject. And I, one of the things that comes up for me is a lot of confusion about what I should do you know, uh, in my life, how, how to respond to what I'm feeling, what I'm reading, what I'm seeing, what I'm thinking. And it's really useful because it can be like a traffic jam, you know, like wanting resolution, wanting clarity, wanting to be a good white person, for example, <laughs> right? And to realize I can just feel my body sitting there. So it's not, like I don't have to have on a conceptual level perfect clarity about who I am, what I'm going to do, how I, you know, how I resolve whatever it is I'm feeling about being a white person in this, at this time and place with these conditions. I can just notice sitting is like this, seeing is like this. I can just ground, turn the attention to the immediacy of the present moment. It doesn't mean that the issues that the reading and studying and reflecting that the issues raised aren't real or important. It just means that cycling in doubt isn't helping anybody. Right? It's just making the heart and body tight. It's what often keeps people from looking deeper is that we tend to go into that work so we can get done with it. <laughs> and uh, what I've been finding, not just in terms of that work, but any work in life, whether it's relationship work or justice work or just dealing with our own unfinished emotional business trauma, is not to presume there's an end to it. It's not about getting to the end where there's no more work to do. It's about learning how to hold all of the uncertainty, the messiness. There's a teaching, I'm not sure where it originated, it says, it goes something like this, if you pluck certainty out of the moment, you also pluck doubt out of the moment. When you're living your life in order to be certain, you created the conditions to live with doubt. You'll be haunted by the shadow of doubt. And there's a great line from, uh, I'm sure some of you read the book, or I think it's in the book, not the movie, uh, Life of Pi by Jan Martel. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. Because <laughs> it is so deadening, right? We just get into tighter and tighter knots. And of course, you know, doubt, it has, there's a skillful kind of doubt, like not um, releasing the mind from fixed views, having a more open not knowing, you know, like in the Zen tradition they use that phrase, don't know mind. It's really useful, but that's different than doubt. Doubt, in this sense, the unskillful hindrance of doubt, really 
um, talks about the mind being in the superficial, ungrounded, right? Just in the thoughts themselves, looking for resolution in the thinking. Knowing that we don't know isn't doubt, because knowing that we don't know is actually uh, it's liberating. Getting comfortable with not knowing. But doubt is thinking that we can figure it out or thinking that we should know. And it's just a matter of thinking about it one more time or thinking about it from a different angle. This is from Saida Utejaniya. If doubt is unskillful, it causes confusion and agitation. It makes you feel less and less comfortable. Skillful doubt makes the mind curious. It puts the mind into an investigative mood. And so, you know, in terms of the three refuges, Buddha, knowing Dhamma, and in that intimacy expressing Sangha, sort of beautiful qualities that we'd all recognize in ourselves or another person if we saw them. There's something about this um, this, you know, investigative from Buddha knowing Dhamma, there's a, a real, maybe a good word would be a real innocent sense of respect and awe and wonder, Buddha knowing Dhamma. I mean, this is a real telltale sign in our practice as opposed to boredom. Like when you're with something like the breath or feeling pain in your body or being feeling bored in your practice, feeling like your mind is all over the place. But it's very familiar. And there's, there's a sense of like, oh, I know this experience. And we don't necessarily see it, but the mind then withdraws. And it's then identified with the thought, oh, I'm bored again. Or there's that knee pain again. Or my mind's all over the place again. And so we may not realize it, but we're in the thought, we're in the mind's interpretation of what's happening. And we're trying to resolve a problem that arose precisely because the mind is identified with its thought or interpretation of what's happening and not in the immediacy of the activity of body and mind, Buddha knowing Dhamma. And we're trying to resolve it in that place where it can't be resolved. It's just chasing our own tail. I remember right in the first months I started being serious about meditation in the early 80s. And I was actually up in Alaska at the time backpacking. And and I, I remember this very, I can still sort of sense that experience of just in this very internal space, having a real clear sense of my mind chasing its own tail. And just really seeing the dukkha, the suffering in that, and the endlessness of it. And even a little sense of like, this is how one goes crazy, right? 
And I, and I just sort of, it was interesting, I had gotten myself in this sort of enclosed place, this sort of ravine, you know, and I just sort of got myself up and I started walking. I was by myself. I was backpacking with a few other people. We were way up back in the wilderness. And I just started walking up in the open hills and it just like giving my mind something to do, like feel the physicality of walking. I just, because I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just sort of, had just gotten really enthused about practice and was just learning on my own from some books I picked up and dragging along with me. And um, yeah, and I just noticed like, that trap in my mind. And I always had that tendency in my mind to kind of escape life and go into my own thoughts as a kid, you know, the fantasy life. And I sort of had that tendency as a lot of children do. And, uh, but just really seeing, because now I was, had some awareness in there and really just seeing the endlessness of these loops. And just intuitively finding that a simple resolution was just to do something and absorb into it. Take a walk. Feel the sensations of walking. Notice the scene, right? And just the engaging life, Buddha knowing Dhamma. I mean, just moving in that direction. And then, of course, in that activity, just feeling a lot of beautiful qualities. I remember just noticing some of the wildlife and the hours after that. And uh, just a lot of natural appreciation and love and just sort of wholesome qualities. As opposed to fear, you know, when I was in that sort of noticing the mind chasing its own tail, I was just noticing the fear and the control and like wanting to get, wanting to fix it and, and then just getting tighter and tighter, right? It was just like whatever move I tried to make, to resolve it because it always involved the thinking mind, it just wound it up tighter and tighter. It just really getting that we don't resolve that neurotic activity with the neurotic activity. We don't resolve hate with hate or greed with greed. Right? This is the same thing we think with greed. I f- we feel the tightness of wanting something and we think, I'll give myself it. And then I'll be done with that wanting. But gratifying desire does not lead to the end of wanting. In the same way that with doubt, if I just think this through, then I'll resolve doubt. But because concepts will never resolve doubt, because concept is just a concept. It's like these philosophical questions. I don't know if any of you could talk to Patrice, who's not here in the Buddhist studies this time, but she's a PhD philosophy person. But you know, some of these ideas that we can get to with philosophy, you know, they they don't, we can't answer the questions we ask. I mean, this is also true with some of the dogma in Buddhism. You know, if, if we're not a self, who's thinking this thought right now? And to try to answer that question by thinking as opposed to realizing that the question itself is just something being known, right? 
And that's the essential choice we have. What do we do with the questions that arise? And so like in Buddhism, we think of right thought or skillful thought or useful thoughts or thoughts that direct the attention back to the immediacy of things in and of themselves. Sensation is just sensation being known. Sight is just seeing being known. Hearing is just, sound rather, is just hearing being known. Thinking is just thoughts being known. It's just this activity of the mind or body being known. So um, I thought for some of the last amount of time that we have, we could, I'll share a few examples, but just look at some of the ways that doubt has arisen in our own life, some of the questions or the ideas that seem so, have seemed in the past so compelling that the mind, thinking mind, took a hold of it and basically didn't think it was appropriate to do anything else until this was resolved. And then to reflect on what we've learned, um, the, just the different skillful means for what both prevents doubt from arising, but also what allows us to abandon doubt that has arisen. So when the mind has built up a head of steam, caught up in doubt, what have we learned that allows, us, allows the mind to unhook from this? remember one especially poignant time. This is probably in the mid-90s. I was on retreat at IMS, and uh, it was like a nine-day retreat. might have been Larry Rosenberg's retreat that I did. Wynn and I did a few times in July at IMS. And uh, I just remember going to my room and uh, just being the mind, just feeling almost completely paralyzing doubt. And at that point, you know, I'd been practicing for, you know, 12, 13 years, really sincerely. It was the most important thing in my life, the only thing I really cared about, I mean, in the, deep, in the deepest sense. And then just, you know, it was, I think mostly, if I remember correctly, just feeling distract, distracted in my sits and maybe a lot of physical discomfort and, you know, not feeling settled and just assuming everybody else was settled you know and here I am I'm a serious practitioner much more serious than the rest of you and yet <laughs> you know just that whole setup you know and at that point I was had been teaching for a while already um, not necessarily leading residential retreats at that time but common ground was already in existence and you know I'd been started teaching in the late 80s so you know leading groups and stuff like that so that just exposes the mind to a lot of doubt when you're sitting in front of a group regularly and then you have a retreat like that. You think, what am I doing? <laughs> and I just remember just sort of lying there, not, not in any way being able to resolve the questions like, am I any good at this? <laughs> you know? And just, j- just that... Uh, 
like the mind really wants to resolve that feeling of humiliation, like either to blame somebody, including yourself, myself, you know, I just haven't tried hard enough, you know, or blame my teachers or blame the tradition, but I couldn't, nothing made sense to blame. You know, so it, you really get in a pickle where big problem and the mind really wants to resolve it, the thinking mind really wants to resolve it, but not knowing, like not being able to construct a story that made enough sense to identify, to get attached to. And, and then all the more desperate to find some story. Right? And fortunately, at some point it gets so dramatic that it starts to stand out as ridiculous. Right? And um, there's a, a line from, I think, Voltaire. Let's see if I can find it. I had it written down. Doubt is an uncomfortable state, but certainty is ridiculous. Right? So the mind, and this is that dynamic of doubt, is like looking for certainty. And what drives the desire for certainty is the uncomfortable feeling of doubt. And, and so one of the, that experience, so when we're doubting our practice or doubting our worth, self-worth, is the willingness to feel what it feels like to not know. That's, a, you know, that's an essential Dharma move. What do you can, like, if you're going to ask yourself a question, the question, what does this feel like, and to be more specific, you might need to add, what does this feel like in the body? Just to help ground it in the present moment, what is the feeling here and now, the visceral feeling here and now, so that the mind doesn't confuse the question as if we're looking for a verbal answer? What does this feel like? And you see, it's not about having an answer to the question, it's about dropping out of the world of thought and realizing, oh, it feels like this now. There is this feeling being known. And the thing about doubt is when we're willing, when the mind is willing to be intimate with feeling and know that it's just this feeling being known, a lot of the swirl, like needing to know, who I am or whether I'm any good or it it the compulsion goes away. There's something so real, so grounding about knowing there's a feeling and it feels like this. It's just this feeling being known. This is the thing about any moment of mindfulness, whatever it might be, it has a sense of completion it really challenges this existential, uneasy sense of the moment being uncompleted, that the moment needs something in order for it to be complete. This is sort of the basic delusion that there's a somebody that needs something, right? Like safety or healing. Or I'm a deluded human being that needs to practice in order to be enlightened. So whatever that story is of being a somebody who needs something gets resolved in any moment 
of mindfulness. And the more complete or full the, mi- the moment of mindfulness is, the more completely fully the existential anxiety in that moment is abandoned. So there are moments of freedom all the way along the path. We may not clearly recognize, but we can train the mind. This is what I meant earlier about really training the mind to more clearly recognize moments of no doubt. There's no doubt. You know, like Joseph Goldstein sometimes, you know, he'd have people just, you know, he'd do this for different reasons, but one reason he'd have people just sort of hold their hand out. He could do anything. You could feel your sits bones against the cushion or chair or just feel the vibration in your fingers and hand or just opening to some simple sensory experience and really get intimate with it. And you'll see there's no doubt in the mind when you're just in the awareness of that experience. There's no doubt about whether you're a good person or a bad person or whether you should do this or that. All of that, at least temporarily, disappears in any moment of mindful awareness with things as they are. And so our job, you know, as we continue to explore doubt in the weeks, years ahead in our practice, is to get really interested and confident in the freedom from doubt, that experience. And to really see it as the refuge, to start connecting that with Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, or whatever words you use for your refuge. Right there, this path delivers. As the Buddha says, it's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, it's good in the end. There's a beautiful, um, maybe I'll end here and then open it up and we, we can talk about experiences of doubt and experiences of resolution, but I'll just share this. Um, you can probably find this article online, Ajahn Jayasaro. He's one of the senior Western uh, Buddhist monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition. He has a monastery in Thailand, even though he's British. And this uh, article, if you want to track it down, is Faith on the Quest by Ajahn Jayasaro. It's really a beautiful article about faith. And he just talks about his early years in the practice. And, you know, not so different than the story I told. You know, he had gone to India to find his teacher, you know, and become enlightened. And, and he just sort of, it was a frustrating experience. And, and then he had to head back home to England, and I guess he ran out of money or something. And he was taking a really long bus ride to a uh, more dry part of India that just went on and on and on. And he was, you know, this is like the evening, the afternoon and evening, and just looking out the window, and the r- bus is going to go for all through in the night into the morning. And he was just noticing how the barren landscape sort of matched just his own doubt and what's the point and nothing's happening. And it reminds me just this, because this is so common. It's like we really are in good company with doubt. And Jack Kerouac, some of you read that book, uh, Dharma Bums, and I think it's in that book. Um, And then he talks about getting this gig of, of, uh, being up in one of those fire towers in the Cascade Mountains in Washington State, I think, and for a summer job, you know, where all, you're all alone and 
most of the time at least, and you're high up in this fire tower, and you're just sort of, I don't know, every hour or whatever it is, you look around, see if you see any smoke, you know, and if you do, you call it in. He thought, you know, just be in the bliss of my meditation and merge with God and all other great things and, you know, write poetry or whatever, <laughs> or write down wise things. And he, he concludes, you know, <laughs> as he got into the thick of it, that all he ended up with his being with his old hateful self, right? Like all our demons, that's what we find in these places. So anyway, that's sort of what, this is before Ajahn Jayasara had become a monk. He was just a lay person trying to find his way in the spiritual path. And uh, so in the middle of the night, he you know, basically fell asleep at some point in this endless bus ride. But it, somehow in the middle of the night, there was one of those infrequent rain bursts there in the desert in India. And when he woke up, you know, I don't know if you know this about the desert. I, I spent a little bit of time in New Mexico, so I have that, I've had this experience. After a, a rain shower, you know, and often they're just like in a certain place, but the desert just comes alive for a few days. And these plants are just waiting for their chance to have a little water. And they bloom very quickly. And all this color and, the, and especially the smell that comes out in the desert when there's some rain. And so he woke up. And, you know, he was so, like, one of the things that happens when we're in doubt is the vision that the mind constructs with its stories. Because right? all we see is evidence that supports what we're thinking. Like when we think we're bad, we remember all the appropriate evidence that convinces us that we are bad or not good, not good enough. And so it's the same thing, you know, just like, oh, this is worthless land, I'm a worthless person. And then to wake up to the richness and the beauty and just the shock of having been so wrong. And this is like... Maybe some of you can share these experiences. I remember another time in the middle of a long three-month retreat, just feeling that sort of barren feeling of nothing happening and a little bit, oh, poor me, kind of going on. And I remember just walking from my room into the dining hall on the way to the meditation hall at IMS. And there was just other retreatants in the dining hall, maybe half a dozen or ten people or so, sipping their tea, being human beings, doing the best they could. But there was some, there was just something about the conditions in that moment and my heart having been tenderized by its own suffering that the heart just bloomed into this really beautiful experience of compassion for myself, for all my fellow retreatants, for the whole world. It was really an unbounded, natural, completely uncontrived, not anybody trying to be compassionate in order, order to deal with the barren feeling in my heart. It wasn't a Dharma move or strategy. And it was such a interesting contrast to notice how doubt resolves itself. If we just notice, like probably if I reflected back, is I was doing my best to feel what it feels like to feel unworthy or not good enough or to be caught in doubt, right? And that really tenderizes the heart. 
And it really reveals, like when you're connected to the underlying feeling tone, you really see how the next spinning, the next thought about doubt, is just like twisting the knife. And eventually, you're in this sort of place of great patience where it still really hurts, there's no clarity, but you've stopped twisting the knife as much. And it's just an accident waiting to happen. And when the conditions are all just right, something beautiful happens. And then the the thing about it, it isn't even so much that the compassion was the truth and the doubt was the wrong. What really is the fruit of that kind of a moment is a, a more pervasive mistrust of how convincing doubt looks when it's got a head of steam. doesn't mean that doubt won't have a head of steam, but there's something in the mind that doesn't quite fall under the spell, like a little sliver of space. And I even remembered it you know, in that earlier experience, lying on the bed, you know, that I mentioned that first retreat, one of those first retreats at IMS. I remember there was just a little, just a, the tiniest sliver of awareness that all it understood was, this is a really big drama. Like, like it, it was so compelling and convincing, but there was just a little sliver of wisdom that understood, this is a big drama. Didn't mean I had any capacity to be skillful with the drama, but it knew there's a little bit of understanding that this is a drama. In the same way that we know, like when there's a lot of doubt, there's a lot of doubt. The mind has a lot of doubt. I really have no idea whether I should be up here giving a talk on doubt or whatever, (laughs) whatever it might be. So let's take the last 10 minutes and hear from some folks in the room about your own experiences with doubt and then also how you might have resolved it. Yeah. Thanks, Helen, to start us off. Mark, um, the best advice you ever gave me, and I think it's the best advice. Maybe even a little closer. The best advice I've ever gotten, I think I got from you, and it was about two years ago when both my aunt and my dad were dying, and my aunt lived in Florida and my dad was here, and I was their caregiver. And for days, I didn't know where I should be because I didn't know which one was going to die first. And I was losing sleep over it. And I went to you and I said, I I told you my problem. And you said to me, "Um, well, first, this is what I probably add, relax. And you said, you'll know. You don't have the answers right now. Don't beat yourself up trying to find the answers. You'll know when the time is right. You'll get the answer, the information as you go along. And that has just stuck with me because it worked so beautifully. So um, I don't have the doubt I used to have because I was in such a suffering so much through that experience of like three days of just going around and around that I see it now when it comes up. And my boyfriend, he was looking for something for a triathlon, like his bathing cap or something. And he was spending a half hour going through these boxes, throwing everything out. And I just said, relax, let's go do something and you will find the answer. And he goes, no, I won't. But sure enough, in an hour, he goes, oh, it's in that box over there. Thanks, Helen. No, no, let's see who else has uh, something to share. What else? Yeah, over here. Please, John. 
Thank you. Um, yeah, I was thinking of a story of doubt that was pretty overwhelming. Um, but first, I'd, I think I'd like to say that... Real close, John. Uh, first, I'd like to say that I think that the word depression is really not very descriptive. Uh, but I think this, I think describing it as overpowering doubt of yourself is much more, it rings more true to me. And it's always, well, not lately so much, but it's something I lived with all my life. And to kind of give you an idea, uh, when I was a teenager, you know, they ask you what you want to be when you grow up, and I'd give the expected answers. But in my mind, I thought, I'm going to die a drunk in an alley. That's what I thought I was going to be when I grew up. And variations of that. And then I re read this book called, uh, and I'm sure many of you know about it, um, The Mindful Path Through Depression or something like that. And it convinced me what we're talking about here, that you can't think your way out of doubt. Because you could say, well, so, you know, why can't I do this? And then doubt says, well, because you're broken, <laughs> right? Because of course you can't do it. Just look, you couldn't do that. You couldn't do that, whatever. So it's not something you really can, um, you can't think your way out of it. But the sort of some of the ideas they use from this practice to try to help you, they were not working for me. And when I realized that that was based on this, I thought, well, I'll come here. And this has been truly um, liberating. Um, but I guess what I want to say is because of that, because I was so convinced you can't think your way out of it, I got that part really clearly, is that the other four hindrances are really hard for me. This one is not. Because I came into it convinced that I could not think my way out of it, and I knew there had to be, and it was suggested there was another way, and my first retreat was like mind-bending. I was like, I had like a five-minute depression, which went away for a whole week. That just never happened to me. And so I was convinced that this is the path I needed to take. Uh, but it was that, sort of that securitous route. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, John. Who's next? Yeah, Anka. Right over here. Hi. Uh, you know, during the meditation just earlier tonight, I, um, I had a moment of doubt that I want to share. I, uh, it, it was very um, compelling of what the habits of my mind are. So during the meditation, I was aware of the sensations of my breath. And there was a moment when it was so intense, not the sensations, but the intimacy of of being with the sensations that I felt chills on my back and I felt kind of as when you're very excited or very scared uh, that physicality of a sensation even pores opening on my skin and it was something different and a bit enjoyable but I immediately woke up from that with a question Maybe it will, maybe it's the fans above. Maybe it's <laughs> it, that it's not real. And the moment after that, I brought my. I'm glad I brought myself back with a moment of self compassion to thinking. No, it might have been that. It might have been just that intense of an intimate moment. 
And I don't overcome doubt easily, but I was happy tonight. It was a small, small moment, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. And it's a good example of not needing to have the answer. Like, what it was is what the mind knew in that moment. Do we need to categorize it like, oh, that, is that rapture? Maybe it was rapture. Oh, that's good. Or, you know, or maybe it was, it was a problem with my spine. <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> One of the descriptions of rapture is the sort of hair standing at the back of the neck or, you know, that sort of feeling up the spine, you know, that we get, right? Because that's what happens when the mind begins to settle. Energy can build, right? And it can mature into what we call rapture. And it can be confusing. Like, what's going on? Yeah, thanks, Hanka. Time for one more person, at least. Yeah, please. So. Yeah, this uh, brought to mind my Sunday school experience where I had a lot of doubt, you know, the typical pain in the butt kid who's always uh, asking about plagues, you know, what happened, why this, you know, why three people in one? And um, (laughs) (laughs) and, um, I think one thing that really helped me in Buddhism was just, you know, Buddha saying, come and see. Maybe a little closer. Oh, just the, the Buddha saying, come and see. Just, you know, don't believe anything. Uh, follow this path. See how it, there, you know, what happens with you. You know, the, the sort of the, com- the, granted there are some doctrines in Buddhism in certain ways, but that central, um, that central welcoming right from the beginning, I think, removes a lot of doubt. Yeah, thanks. Time for one last sharing. Yeah, please, want to pass the mic over? So, is it working? I think so, but you have to point, yeah, like that. Oh, yeah. So, I think um, she has put on a very nice idea, actually, when it comes to doubt in Buddhist practice, which is called Ehipasiko. Ehipasiko is you come witness yourself. So, it means um, when we look at the problems, when we look at the things, there should be a science behind it, how to look at it. Sometimes when we lack that science, or sometimes when we lack that faith, and our mind becomes more, more doable, or it's become fluctuate, and it goes up and down, because we are all ordinary beings. Ordinary beings? Yeah. So, in... Buddhist teachings, many times, like, if you look at the summary of all these stories, for everyone, it has been somebody who have been talking to them and bringing some realization. So when we go back to early Buddhism, like, for example, like stories of Sarakani. Sarakani was a drunkard, uh, uh, quite a habitual drinker we used to drink every day but he still come to realization after listening to teachings from someone who has attained someone who has having some experiences how did he come so quickly to that transformation in his mind it's because he was able to listen that teaching 
and apply the experiences to himself and witness it and he realized and he come to realization oh this is the ground so on the the other fundamental thing that we need to we must not forget is about our ground mind our or, or what our ground mind uh-huh. our ground consciousness or which we call prabhaswara chitta Uh, it means the luminous mind or the luminosity of our na- mind. It's naturally every one of us having the Buddha seed or the natural luminous mind. Because the visitors of kleshas or the three poisons, which he called attachment, aversion, and ignorance or delusion, we we kind of we dissolve our mind and we kind of become our mind uh, we make our mind dark we make our mind unclear but our natural mind within us naturally is said to be luminous mm. that's one of the fundamental concepts so learning that concept being buddhist is the first philosophical approach which will give any buddhist practitioner or any meditator a clear inside oh i have that seed within me yeah. i don't have to doubt about it everyone got that nature which is called luminosity or prabhasara chitta or in tibet buddhism it's called adi buddha yeah and it's our refuge of buddha that's what we mean by the refuge of the buddha not the person but that wakeful quality that luminosity of the mind Thank you so much for right, sharing. Thank you. Yeah. So let's just take a few moments, let go of the words. Appreciate our course and being together. Appreciating the silence. Befriending the way that it is now. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.